oh, I can't wait to see how he does this. Uh, <laughs> so here's my background. Um, I, uh, over the summer, was teaching Sunday school, uh, quote-unquote teaching. I was more stumbling through it. And uh, in the process of teaching Sunday school, one of the Durga boys, I can't remember which one because they all look alike. Um, oh, like you can tell them apart. <laughs> uh, one of the Durga boys, it was one of the younger ones, I know that, um, commented that, oh, John, thanks, <laughs> commented that he had never heard a, a sermon on Song of Solomon. And I, I uh, oftentimes my mouth moves faster than my brain. Um, and in, this is one of those instances I commented, well, you know, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do a, uh, I'm going to do a sermon series on marriage, uh, right before Christmas, and I will do a sermon on Song of Solomon. And, and so I, I'll do that. And then, as I said that, um, they said, well, we'll be away, you know, none of us will be here. And I managed to time this, so I got all of them here. So, um, please forgive me in advance. Uh, <laughs> I, I, before I start really digging into this, I wanted to comment, I, that was, that was a good song, wasn't it? I mean, like, like there are these moments in worship um, when when you're there and and everything is perfect. You know what I'm talking about? And you're with your family and you're with your extended family of God, and the 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 worship music is right there, and you sort of have this almost moment of encounter with God, like where it's just it's just these perfect like like a little foretaste of what heaven might be like. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, this is one of my one of my mornings for that. That was it right there. So. I wanted to say thank you, and actually as I'm going to start talking about this, I'm going to talk a little bit about about my wife and I, because I one of the biggest blessings that I've had in life has been been getting married. Um, it's a blessing I haven't always wanted, um, but it's been it's been terrific. I, and and I've had these moments of experience where, through my marriage and through prayer and through through you know focusing on on the blessing that God gives us in marriage, I've looked and seen, well, you know what, this is a bit how like how God describes this, right? I mean, if you read the song or uh, the proper, uh, the prophets, for example, you'll find where um, God describes, you know, almost wooing his people back to him. And there's almost this sort of like, like there's this love, you know, romanticy kind of kind of analogy that's set on top of the description of God's love for his people. Um, you know, where where he's this mighty warrior, and and you know, God's people in in the Old Testament, of course, it's Israel. They're the you know the 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 beautiful maiden that he rescues, or the the orphan that he takes and raises up and marries eventually, or what have you. I mean, like there's this there's a sense of this. And and uh, when I met Jessica, which was what 15 years ago, did I actually write that right? I was I typed it and I was looking at it and thinking, oh no, did I get that wrong? Um, I remember um, in our in our first dates when we would go out and I, you know, there's there's this sort of like, I don't know how many of y'all have gone on first dates with with someone that you ended up like falling head over heels over. Um, I hope to one day. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no, but but there's this sort of anticipation, this this giddy like first love, this this oh you know she's going to be here, and then you worry about well what's she going to think about what I'm wearing, or or what's she going to think about you know my I get a haircut, what's she going to think of that, or or this picture was taken during Christmas, it's at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and I I took her there on one of our first dates, right, 
Um, you know, what's she going to think about this? Is she going to think I'm kind of nerdy because I'm taking her to a museum? And, you know, what's she going to think about the Christmas gift I gave her because it was Christmas, actually? And, and there's sort of this, like, worry. And there's this element when we first encounter Christ and we first come into a relationship with God, like, where we, where we experience this, you know, the, the sort of giddy joy at, at, at being able to talk to God, being able to, you know, understand that we come into His very presence when we pray. I mean, like we, you know, when we pray, we're literally standing in the throne room of God, and and in the beginning, we have this blush of first love, you know, and 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 one of the cool things is that God has built into the world ways to experience this through analogy. Make sense? Um, I have a handful of pictures. This is our wedding day, um, the happiest day of Jessica's life, and. <laughs> Um, and, and there's this sense of completeness to it, you know, where, where it's like, well, this is, this is forever. And I had no idea what that meant. Um, or this is for life, you know, and, and, and you start this journey together. And again, there's, there's this element to which as you do this, you, you come to know God in a different way because you experience, you know, part of how he describes himself. Just passing the girl around. It's okay. Um, this is us in Costa Rica. Um, we went to Costa Rica was four years ago. I don't know. Three is before we had kids, so it was back in the happy times. Um, <laughs> when, but we're, we're in the rainforest and we actually hiked, um, down this path and we came to the bottom of this mountain, right? This is this mountain with a rainforest on top of it. It's called a cloud forest. And they call it that because you just stand at the bottom, you look up and all you can see is, is clouds. I mean, you can't even see the top of the mountain. And the place that we hiked to, there was a waterfall that fell I don't know, 400 yards or something. It was a long way. I mean, it, it literally fell out of the clouds and into this pool at the bottom. And we hiked for about an hour to get to this place. And, and we stood there and I remember it was breathtaking, the view of it, you know, and it was, it was one of those moments where, you know, I, I don't know how, with, with my wife, you know, I don't know that I would have wanted to be anywhere else or with anyone else. And there's this moment of a, you know, wow, God has done awesome things in this world. Um, you know, in this moment of experience of God's grace and God's, like, amazing power, you know, through, you know, and, and, and my marriage relationship was enhanced by that. And I understood God better through the experience. Am I, you guys following me? Um, Abby, um, they, there's, a, there's a line in, um, in the Gospels where Jesus says that all of creation is experiencing um, birth pains, like a, like a woman in labor, right? Like for the new thing that is coming. And I remember walking around with Jess in that hospital for 52 hours and thinking, well, this isn't that bad. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, it offered a different perspective as to what that, what that's like, right? Like, like obviously not a firsthand experience, but, but it offers this different understanding of what it is. And actually then holding like this brand new person, I don't know how, some of y'all have kids, right? You know, the, the experience of, of holding this brand new life, this new soul in your hands and knowing I'm responsible for this thing's eternity. And, and, you know, I helped make this, right? Like this, this is a person who wasn't here yesterday, you know, and, and is here now. And, and this sort of moment of joy that goes with that. And you think, wow, I wonder what it's like for God to have created, right? Or for God, you know, when we as believers go out and, and bring other folks to Christ, you know, and, and, and lead other people into a new life in Christ. What, what must that be like for God as our Father to look and see that? Um, or even when, when they get frustrating and they cry and you think, what am I going to do? You're in the middle of church. <laughs> and the pastor's picking on me from the pulpit. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and then there's those times when, like, you find out that, that Abby's going to have a younger sibling. 
and, and in June. Um, and you're like, wow, another one. That's amazing. That's wonderful. Um, I, <laughs> I was wondering how that go. Oh, by the way, we're pregnant. Um, <laughs> well, she is. I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> and we'll have another one in June. They're, they're, I think the little tail came from her side of the family. <laughs> the, the giant nose sticking out is mine. <laughs> but these are moments in life when we, um, you know, God blesses us with the opportunity to know him more intimately just, just through the, the, the act of experiencing the world he's created for us, right? Um, and, and everybody experience, well, not everybody experiences marriage. A lot of folks experience marriage. Not everybody has the joy of knowing God better through it. Um, we as saved people have the opportunity to know God more intimately through this. And as we approach Song of Solomon, I wanted to set this as the framework because Song of Solomon is, it's a very, very difficult book. Um, it, it's difficult for a lot of reasons. Oh, my wife advanced the slide. Thank you. I wasn't done looking at the baby. Um, <laughs> um, it's a very difficult book because because you read it and and it's clearly a love poem, right? Have any of y'all read it? I'm, I'm sure other people. It's not just me. <laughs> it, it's clearly a love poem, and it's a love poem that that probably you know if you read it, it you know the imagery and whatnot is a little on the racy side at times. It is, um, which made it really hard to pick a sermon text. Thanks, John. Um, <laughs> um, and actually, historically has made it really hard for, for Christians and for actually before the church came along for the Jewish, you know, for the Jewish people, like they had a great deal of difficulty in, in handling this book and understanding how to properly handle it. Um, when you, when you take Bible interpretation classes in, in seminary, there, there's this thing called allegory, right? Allegory is how the Bible was interpreted from like 500 through like 1500, right? And it, it's considered to be completely wrong. It's where you take a part of the Bible and you say, this represents this, and this represents this, and every little bit in the book is like an exact symbol of something else. And so you read Song of Solomon, which is this love poem, and there's some like marital relations stuff that happens in there, and there's some stuff referring to body parts, and they start assigning labels. They're like, well, you know, this is, you know, the church, and, you know, the, this is how we're, we're fed spiritually, and you start reading, and you think, really? <laughs> Did I miss something? Um, and the problem, the problem with allegory, first off, is it's considered a, a bad way to interpret scripture. But Song of Solomon is the only book that Protestants and, and Catholics alike can continue to interpret this way. Because n nobody knows how to deal with it. Or most folks don't know how to deal with it. They're uncomfortable with the idea that it's, that it's a love poem in the Bible. Everybody with me? Um, it also makes for a very difficult sermon. Um, so the ways that people have come at it, they've said allegory, right? In fact, I read one commentary from a Puritan um, um, preacher who said, well, there are those who will approach this book and turn it into a, a, a book about marriage and, and, and intimate relations in marriage, and we need to stop those people because that's a horrible way to read this. It's evil. And you think, really? Didn't God make it? Isn't this a part of you know how God does things? But but we have trouble with it. Um, so allegory is one way that people come at it. Um, some people will read this and they'll say, "Well, this is a marriage ceremony. It's something that would be read at a at a wedding." And sometimes it is read at a wedding, but not very often. Like it's something people generally avoid. We had it read at our wedding. Um, at least that's as I remember. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Um, 
um, and and they would say, well, you know, it's not actually supposed to be instructive. It's like opening the 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 Book of Common Prayer and going to the part on funerals, and you read the funeral procession, and you know this is just like that. The Jews would open it up and they'd read the wedding part, except that they didn't because um, we can read Jewish commentary from like the Old Testament period, and they also didn't know how to handle the book. <laughs> they sort of sort of stumbled with it and said, well, you know, in fact, actually, Jewish men weren't allowed to read the Book of Song of Solomon until they were thirty. Um, so if you were a Jewish man before Jesus came along, you were not allowed, you were not allowed to read the book of Song of Solomon until you were 30 because it's considered kind of racy, right? Um, it, there are folks who will come along and say, well, it's a love poem, period. Nothing else. It's the only way we're supposed to read it. In fact, the only reason it's in the Bible is because Solomon wrote it. Um, I, I don't buy that, right? If it's in the scripture, all scripture's good. All scripture's useful for teaching. All scripture has like purpose and we can, we can be edified through it. And so there's, there's value in it, right? So this like, oh, just disregard it because it's uncomfortable business doesn't fly, right? Um, my argument, what I'm going to talk about today is this idea that it's a love poem, but, um, it's a reflection of eternal truth, right? Which is something we've talked about a little bit, right? Like that marriage is a reflection of the Trinity. That, um, you know, in Ephesians for the last couple weeks, we've talked about, um, the married relationship being similar to Christ and the church, right? Which is Paul's writing that, that, you know, the, the husband's supposed to take the role of Christ and the woman is supposed to take the, the wife is supposed to take the role of the church and they interact and their interactions are supposed to reflect this, this reality about Christ and His church. And, and this is the perspective that I, that I tried to come at this book with. And so we're actually gonna start in chapter two. Uh, this is two one, I think. Hold on, let me. Yep, 2-1. So if you're following along at home, um, I, I've done this in red and blue. And the reason we've done it in red and blue is because it's a dialogue, right? This is Solomon and, um, and a woman, probably a shepherdess, right? And they're having this exchange, and it's sort of a wooing exchange. And you, if you think about it from that perspective, um, you know, and she starts by saying, I'm a rose of Sharon, uh, the lily of the valleys. And oftentimes, this is a funny verse, because oftentimes women will have attached to this, and it's become this like watchword for, hey, I'm beautiful and I'm wonderful, I'm a rose of Sharon, I'm, you know, a lily in the valley. And actually what she's saying is, I'm just like everyone else, because rose, the rose of Sharon was a very common flower, and a lily of the valley was a very common flower. And so what she does when she approaches her, her bow, I don't know what's the right word for that, um, when she approaches her bow, she says, I'm nothing special. I might be pretty, but there are a lot of pretty women around me, right? Um, I'm, I'm common. Even if there's something that's nice about me, it's a common nice. Um, to which Solomon re- responds, um, like a lily among thorns, so is my darling amongst maidens. Um, so he responds, he says, no, you stand out everywhere you go. You might think you're common, but you're exceptional. Now, a lily amongst thorns. There's probably a lot to this. Thorn bushes, we have them in Montana, do we? I haven't lived here that long. I try not to go outside. Um, <laughs> um, we have thorn bushes, right? Like, like, do we go after things in thorn bushes? Not if we can help it, I assume. Um, then, and I'm guessing thorn bushes tend not to be very attractive, right? Um, roses, but roses don't grow naturally. I don't believe that. Um, and, and so, so he's saying, listen, not only are you gorgeous, you're gorgeous and you stand out, right? And secondly, he's saying, you're unique to me and unique in a way that makes it like so that everything else in the world is something I don't want to approach. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not reaching into thorn bushes, 
Um, it's a little like looking at my wife in a crowd full of, you know, other, other gals and saying, first off, my wife is beautiful. And secondly, the other women are hands off because I don't want to touch them because it's going to hurt. You can interpret that any way you want. <laughs> um, and, and this is, I would argue, a model for how men are supposed to interact with their wives, right? It's her alone. Which, by the way, is why Christ makes a big deal about this, like, do not look at another woman lustfully business, right? Because your wife is supposed to be, like, exceptional to you. Um, like, like, literally, she's supposed to be, like, like, the one and only thing you see. And everything else that you might try to get your hands on is like sticking your hands into the thorn bush. Don't do it. Um, what's the parallel here? Well, if this is a reflection of an eternal reality, right? This is how we're supposed to react to our spouses. Well, what do we see here? Well... My God is unique in, in all the things in the world that claim to be God, right? There are people who will point to, to science as my God or money as my God or, or um, you know, carnality or, or food or, or um, just sort of enjoying my family. Or they point to all sorts of things that, you know, they want to be God. And when I look at the array of options, all I see is Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus is beautiful to me, right? You know, because I look forward to the day that I can be in his presence, because he saved me. When I was most unlovable, he saved me. Which I think is sometimes something that we, we really love about, you know, dating and getting married is this idea that, like, you know, she loves me no matter what, right? That unconditional love that comes with it. This is a reflection of who Christ is. And so as we approach our spouse, we approach our spouse in a way that's similar to the way we ought to be approaching God, right? The one and only, beautiful to me. Everything else is something that's going to stick me. Everybody with me? This is part of why marriage is awesome um, and why it's a blessing. And as we observe healthy marriages around us, we can see a little bit of what we're called to be as believers. Um, the passage goes on and she responds, uh, Like an apple tree amongst trees of the forest, so my beloved amongst young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Um, so it's, you know, again, she emphasizes young men, which is sort of a funny little thing in the Hebrew here. She emphasizes his youth and the fact that he stands out. Well, how does he stand out? He's got apples. There you go. And there have been attempts by folks to turn apples into something that they're not. I'm going to argue apples, very specifically, are like the joys of having, like being in love with someone, right? Um, I, when I would work long hours um, at my last job, and I would come home late at night, and I would get two or three minutes worth of time with my wife, Right? Yeah, literally, like she'd be on her way to bed and I'd be on my way in the door and, and, you know, we'd have this passing moment. Those two or three minutes would be like the highlight of my day. And I actually remember looking forward to getting that two or three minutes of Jessica time. You know, and then I'd wake up in the morning and she'd be on her way out the door and we'd get this two or three minutes worth of time where we'd see each other. It was a really fun time in life. And these were the highlight moments of the day. Right? I would encounter people all day. I would encounter pretty women. I would encounter um, other people who were my friends. But my relationship with my wife is unique because, because she's my wife, because I love her, and because like, the joys that come with that are special, um, like an apple tree in a forest, right? I encounter a lot of people, um, but you're the only one that, that tastes that good in my life. 
Um, and I think that taste is the best way to describe this, right? Because when you encounter that person that you're, that you're really in love with, that like God has connected to you in this way, like, like literally where you become one person, there's, there's almost like this joy that comes with like a good meal, right? Like it's everything in life. Like it's, it's wonderful. Um, how does this translate into our interactions with God? Well, it's the same basic principle, right? What do I take delight in? I take delight in Jesus alone. I take delight in God alone. Um, I enjoy my time with my wife, but I enjoy my time with my wife partially because of God, right? I enjoy money. Believe me, I do. Um, but money is, is not God. There isn't a joy attached to money that is attached to God. There's this, this apple tree element. Everybody with me? Um, because Marriage is designed to be a reflection of who God is. So how do we live out? Well, we'll come to that in a minute. I'm sorry. Let me get back to my outline here. I actually have one. Um, these regular, like the, the well, um, moving along in the passage, he has brought me to his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. This is another funny one um, because Song of Solomon tends to be translated gently, Right? Um, and in this instance, it actually ought to be, he brought me to the house of wine, um, and his banner over me is love. And even that banner over me, if you read in different translations, there's a, an attempt to soften what it means. Um, he brought me into his, his house of wine or his house of drink is a reference to the idea of being intoxicated with love, right? Being Twitterpated, that's that Bambi, anybody seen that movie? I know that Rebecca has probably a dozen times. She can sing all the songs in it and do the lines. She did that at Thanksgiving, every line with the movie, right? Um, it's like being Twitter paid. It's when you get to this point where, like, just being around this other person, like, it fills you up and makes you not think straight, right? Every young man in the room ought to relate to this, right? Because <laughs> we, we have a habit of not thinking straight. And actually, this is the woman talking at this point. It should be in red. Um, but she, she's presenting this idea that she becomes intoxicated with with him. That's how her relationship is. There's an intoxicating element to the love that they have. Now, and his banner over me is love. Um, I, I picked the knight here because the image here, the banner word, is only used here and in numbers. And in numbers, it is every time it's ever used, it's a reference to like like a like a banner over an army unit, like for war. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And it's oftentimes translated different because they don't want to make it like that because it's like, well, what does war have to do with love? Well, <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, actually, I would argue that it is a natural stance for a man to take to, to, to be a warrior, right? Like there's this idea that, that our natural stance is to be men. We're strong. We're tough, Right. Movies like Braveheart inspire us because because that's the way men are, right? Um, that's why we call it the warrior room for the boys and the princess room for the girls, right? Because because we're warriors. And it, his stance, his soldier stance, you know, his life stance is one of defense, you know, in, in of this loving relationship he has with her, right? And actually, she is, as the woman in the story is saying, he's out there like like willing to willing to fight for being in love with me. Um, he's willing to take this, you know, take anything on, like, like in the name of being in love with me. Like, I, I'm not a woman. I don't understand women at all. But I'm, I'm guessing that some women like that because every Disney movie presents it that way. Um, and there's, am I right, Rebecca? Am I missing something? <laughs> I, I gotta pick on you. It's, I don't get that much chance. Um, 
And so she says, listen, I'm intoxicated with his love, and he stands up and fights for me. That's the, the, the banner that he like has attached to my life. He's, he's willing to do anything in my name. Here again, how do we see this as a reflection of like our relationship with God? First off, it's an ideal for marriage, right? Secondly, it reflects how God is with us. God is willing to go any distance to be intimate and close with us, right? Um, God's willing to send his own son to die for us. God's willing to love us despite our sin. God is willing to, to, um, to sometimes move heaven and earth for his people. Um, he'll go any distance. And his stance over his people is love, like he fights for us. Um, there's a great spot in Exodus, and I would love to talk about this at length, but there's no time today. Um, in Exodus, if you read Exodus, the plagues, each of the plagues um, is affiliated with one of the Egyptian gods, Right? Um, and even the Pharaoh drowning in the end of the, in the end of the plagues, right, at the end of the, the, the departure, the Pharaoh, um, they worshiped him as a god. And so literally what we see in Exodus is God standing up for his people, for Israel, right, and fighting for them personally, um, by, by throwing down the gods of Egypt, right? And this is the stance God takes in relation to us. He's, he's a God who loves us in a way that he would do battle for us. Um, this is a reflection of how God loves us. It's not an allegory, right? It's the truth about what marriage is. Um, but marriage, in turn, re- reflects who God is. Um, Solomon, Song of Solomon 2.5, Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Um, here again, we're seeing another line from the woman. Um, this is the woman line. Um, raisin cakes and apples. Again, this is this idea of r- romance and love and... and, and um, the sort of joys of, of the love experience, right? Um, and she's actually saying, I am lovesick, meaning like, like another way to say that I'm love drunk or I'm Twitter pated, right? But she's actually saying, I'm Twitter pated, I'm love drunk, and I want more of this experience. Um, this is a degree to which how we are to respond to God, right? But it's also how spouses are supposed to respond to each other. We enjoy our time together. We love spending time together. We're filled up by each other. But then at the same time, we want to continue it. Um, it's never enough. It's, it's, it's always more. Um, and in relation to God, like, like here's something that, that um, as we pursue intimacy with God, as we pursue intimacy with Christ, um, it's something that fills us up and it's never enough. Like it might make us satisfied, but we always want more, right? Um, because closeness with Christ is what we're designed to have. Um, so much so that everything else in creation like is revolved around it. Um, and, and marriage is this example of it. This love thing is an example of it. Um, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. <sighs> this is one of the tougher lines in, in the book of Psalms because um, it's the woman again. She's doing a lot of talking here, just saying. Um, <laughs> she, she's doing a lot of talking here. And what she's saying here is, listen, other women, right? This is her message, other women, Swear by by everything in the world, and actually, some translations will render gazelles or by the hinds of the field, like it's roughly equivalent to saying, "Swear by the heavens themselves," you know, by the angels. Stand up and swear that you won't go out and force this. Having love is great, but you can't force it. It's got to be what it is, right? Um, if you force it, you end up with something you don't want. How does this work in relation to marriage? Has anybody ever known somebody who chased off after the wrong boy? 
no, <laughs> just <laughs> um, said, well, this is what I want. I don't care if it's the wrong way. It's what I'm going to have. Um, men do this too, right? Well, I understand she's crazy, but it'll get better. Um, I can't tell you how often I've heard people say, after we get married, everything will change. And in reality, what that means is everything will get much worse. They don't realize that, like, change does not mean, like, oh, then he'll stop, you know, being overweight and throwing his underwear on the floor. Like, in reality, these are not things that change, like, like for the better. You you can't force love. Um, In the same way people oftentimes try to force relationship with God. Not God the Father, Right? They start looking for things that aren't God. And they start looking for experiences that aren't encounter with God. And they say, no, this is what matters. Um, it, it, we see it actually, I think alcoholism is a great example of this, right? Where, where this becomes something that isn't God becomes God, right? But, you know, insert workaholism, insert, you know, constant lust, insert, insert anything. When something becomes God that isn't God, it's forcing experience with God. So what are we to do? Well, we're supposed to watch patiently, and it comes when it comes, right? Our intimacy with God is a part of natural life. It'll happen. I, um, When we were in Costa Rica, and we were standing at the bottom of this giant waterfall, I, it's one of the only moments in my life when I was completely speechless. Because, because I know it's huge, isn't it? <laughs> um, because it was so much, Right? And I'm standing there with my wife, and we're, we're looking up, and literally this water is falling out of the sky. And I went actually swimming out in this pool, and, and it was cold. And, and, but it was like cold, refreshing cold, right? Because we've been walking through the rainforest, and it's hot and humid and everything else. And, and it was this perfect moment. But you can't force that, right? I snapped pictures of it and went back and looked at them, and it wasn't the same. Why? Because you can't force those moments to happen again. Um, it's the same with, uh, like Sherry singing, I can only imagine during offering. You can't force those moments to happen. They just happen. We encounter God on His terms. And if we try to force it, we end up with something that isn't right. Um, well, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, we've got some guidelines for marital relationships and for relationships in general. First off, marriage needs to be appropriate, right? Don't force it. Um, the, Things that occur within marriage have to be appropriate. We can't do things in the wrong order. We can't demand things that aren't ours. We can't force our spouse to behave in a way that's, you know, like gonna hurt them. Um, we have to, like, interact in a way that's, like, like, reflexive of God's standard for love and God's laws for our behavior. Because when we veer from that, we force something inappropriate. Um, I, I mean, it's in the text, right? That's where it ends. Um, intimate. Um, marital relationships are designed to be intimate, close. Um, it's actually when you see at the be- what happens at the fall, like Adam and Eve are created, they're naked and they're not ashamed. Um, when they first sin, sin causes them to cover up, right? And that covering up ruins intimacy because they keep secrets and they hide things. Um, one of the keys to intimacy in marriage is being open, um, is moving away from that trend that we're sinfully inclined toward, and to be honest. And to disclose and to share and to talk, which isn't very easy or fun for men, but it's the reality of it. We're designed to be intimate with each other and open. Um, and it's, it's in the text. Um, exclusive, though in this instance Solomon probably had multiple wives. Um, in this text he's talking about one person and, and central to it, right? Is my, my, my beautiful love, right? She's, she's like a lily amongst thorns. That's exclusive. 
Um, our relationship with our, with our, like, spouse or with our, our significant other is, is designed to be exclusive. It's for them. And it's committed. It's not a in passing. The best stuff takes 10 years to get to. Right? Um, I mean, if I, if you've been married a while, let me know the, if I'm wrong. But like, like the Twitter pated part, that early part, it's fun. The best stuff comes along later. Um, marriage is a marathon, not a sprint, right? Um, what does it tell us about who we are in relation to God? Believe it or not, our relationship God with God should be appropriate, right? In the proper context. By the, this is going to look really similar to the previous list. Um, in the proper context, in the proper setting, following the appropriate rules in the way God designed it to be. It's supposed to be intimate, meaning that we go to God with our difficulties. We rely on God when we hurt. We worship God and try to be open and close with Him, right? Um, it's to be exclusive. God will not put up with worshiping things that aren't Him. Ever. Um, he just doesn't do it. Um, and committed, meaning God doesn't want us to pass by and say, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Um, or, yes, I will pray to you to get to heaven, but then I'm gone, right? It's that, that spiritual, like, like passing by thing. Um, our, inner, our, excuse me, our relationship with God is designed to be committed. Um, The reason that I'm talking about this, the reason I'm closing our marriage series about this is, so our first week we talked about what it was designed to be, right? The second week we talked about what wives' responsibility in regards to, you know, spouses. These are what wives are supposed to do. Um, last week we talked about this is what husbands are supposed to do. Uh, but ultimately supposed to's, it's not fun, right? Um, when Jesus changes the ten, or re-summarizes the Ten Commandments from thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not to love God and love your neighbor, one's easier to do, isn't it? It's a heck of a lot easier to love your neighbor because love is like the frosting in life. It's the best part. Um, and as we look at, at what God designed marriage to be, we find the best part. But it's the best part that requires us to behave in a certain way. Um, and that certain way uh, coincides with being in love, but it's exclusive, it's committed, it's intimate, it's all of these things that make life worth living, um, that make relationship worth having, um, and it's a reflection of what we're supposed to be with God. Um, my challenge for you this week is, is to look at your intimacy, look at your relationship with God, look at your relationship with your spouse, um, and ask yourself, does this reflect? Is, is this what I'm doing? Um, do I have eyes only for you? Um, do I, do I look at other people as, as thorn bushes to get into? You know, is this how I see my intimacy with God? Um, is this how I see my intimacy with my spouse? Um, we're going to close in prayer and I think we have one more song. Does that sound right? Um, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the, the blessings you give us in marriage, for the, for the blessings you give us in, in, in love and our opportunity to have relationship and intimacy with you. I pray that you would pour your spirit on us and help us to um, know you more uh, through our interactions with each other and through our love for you. In Christ's name, amen.